Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. At first glance, addressing climate change might not seem like healthcare's responsibility. With so much pressure to eliminate medical errors, strive for equity, improve patient experience, deal with staffing shortages, and managing rising healthcare costs, we can't possibly expect healthcare to take on the climate crisis too, can we? Well, we can, and we must. According to the most recent research available, the U.S. healthcare sector was responsible for nearly 10% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions, 10% of its formation of smog, and 12% of acid rain. The unavoidable and painful truth is that being part of a system that's contributing to the climate crisis, a major threat to human health, is at odds with the mission of healthcare. First, do no harm. But listeners, we're not just here to talk about daunting challenges. We're also here to talk about solutions. And today's guest helps the healthcare sector to be environmentally sustainable in more than 70 countries around the world. Gary Cohen, a MacArthur Fellow, is co-founder and president of Healthcare Without Harm. And we're delighted to learn from his decades of pioneering the experience. Gary Cohen, welcome to Turn On The Lights. Thanks so much for having me, Don and Kedar. You define a pioneer, actually. You were decades ahead of most others in healthcare and thinking about environment sustainability and global warming, climate change. Uh, now, SURF is up on that, and you and your organization, Healthcare Without Harm, find yourself a global resource. But I'd like to start by asking you, what turned you on to this many years ago when, for most people, it was at best a background issue, if not entirely off their screen? Yeah, so I actually got involved in environmental health issues after the Bhopal chemical disaster in India when a Union Carbide factory blew up and killed thousands of people in one night and injured half a million others as they slept in their beds. And I got involved because it was shocking, of course, and people in the United States were asking, could that same thing happen here? We have so many uh, chemical factories in this country. Yeah, Gary, just for a second, can you remind us of this moment? Bhopal, India, Union Carbide, a, a major event takes place. Could you just put us back in the frame here. So when, it was, when... uh, it was 1984 in December, and uh, Union Carbide had invested in a, in a pesticide factory, part of the Green Revolution, et cetera, in India. And they had stopped providing training, and they had their backup systems were off, and it was some very dangerous chemicals that were stored on site. People had really no idea about them. The, comp the community didn't. The workers did, and they kept wor worrying about a disaster. And one night, the whole thing exploded. So that happened on December 3rd, and it's been called the Hiroshima of the chemical industry. So many people died and so many people were injured. And to this day, the factory has still never been cleaned up. And there are multiple generations of people that are still sick. As, it, as people around the country, in this country, were aware that I got involved in what became a, a very grassroots movement of people who were living next to factories and center, uh, dump sites who were worried about the health of their kids. And the were worried that a similar thing could happen in their neighborhood and, and yeah. that might cause problems for them. And Absolutely. And in fact, there was a sister plant 
right in West Virginia that Union Carbide owned that had a, not as catastrophic an accident, but a, another accident several weeks later. I got involved in this grassroots movement. And at that time, there was no right to know in this country about, wow, what are the chemicals that are in the air in my neighborhood? What are the chemicals that are being dumped in, in the water near me? What are the ones in my neighborhood at that dump site? There was no knowledge. And there was a growing movement. And I got involved in that movement to win first national right to know law in this country, in the world, actually. And can you, and say, can you say a little bit more about what is right? What does that mean? What is a right to know? So basically, it, the right to know required companies that were stored every year, what volume they had and what was and then what was the toxicity of all these toxic chemicals. And so there was a uh, it became uh, called uh, the Toxics Release Inventory. And you as a citizen, we as citizens could access for free a website that said, I live in Pittsburgh. Here's the chemicals that Shell is releasing. Here's the chemicals that these other companies are releasing to the air, to the water, to the land. And here's the potential dangers of these chemicals. So it gave people tools to address what they felt intuitively about the impacts of these chemicals on their family's health. Gary, of all the things in the world you could personally have become concerned about, why did you pick this? What, what is it? Why does this particular issue of exposures and toxins attract your attention back in the 1980s? It was a kind of roundabout way in a way, because out of my college, I was given a, a job in to write books to London and Paris and New York and all these places, restaurants and and hotels and walking tours. And then I had a long stint in India. And when I came back, a friend of mine was an organizer in Boston. And he said, Gary, you're a guidebook writer. Why don't you write a guidebook to toxic chemicals? So if you're a, if you're a mother living in a city and you're, ki- and you're worried about your kids being sick or they're, they're concerned about exposure, there are many groups around the country that are concerned about that. How do you organize your neighbors? How do you use the media? How do you hire a lawyer? How do you access government databases? How do you negotiate with the company? How do you do direct actions? So it was an organizing manual. And I said, I know nothing about this. He said, you don't have to. Go talk to people around the country who are facing these threats. And so I did. And I was so moved by their tenacity, by their bravery, by the fact that they had no political power or money. But they were fighting for their kids' health. They were fighting for their family's health. And I just was hooked. And it, for me, it derives from growing up Jewish and being very attached to Jewish values of social justice. And I felt that the injustices that, were, that these people faced were profound. And so I wrote this book with a bunch of others. And then around the middle of the 1990s, there were some really interesting things that happened together. One is that the there was new science that was saying that very low doses of toxic chemicals in the first thousand days of life, in the womb and in the first couple of years of life, could have a profound impact on the developing child that could link to not only cancer, but learning disabilities, reproductive toxicity, immunological problems. And so there was no real safe dose of chemical exposure. That's not what we had been learned, had been taught. And second, the two poster child chemicals that we were learning about. One was mercury, which we know is very uh, toxic to the developing brains of children. And two was dioxin, which is produced by uh, making uh, certain kinds of plastics when you make them in a factory and then when you burn them. And at the very same time, 
the EPA was saying that medical waste incinerators at hospitals were the largest source of dioxin emissions in the country. This is a, a chemical that's linked to cancer and birth defects and all sorts of other problems. And they were also a significant source of mercury. So we find, we, so there's a few things happening at the same time here. One is we are learning that there are a handful of chemicals, mercury, dioxin, that are incredibly dangerous to us. You're also learning that there's no safe threshold. This is, a, this is change in, what I understand you say is it's change in orthodoxy. Uh, up to this pr- time, you were writing a guidebook that was basically saying this is the level of, of potential chemical in the environment, but there was, in theory, a safe threshold. But what you're learning now is there is no safe threshold. That there's no safe threshold. Any, any exposure really, is something. The way we were measuring it before is at what level of chemical exposure would a 150-pound male get cancer? Got it. That was the level. And we weren't looking at the fact that children are much more vulnerable to yeah. these exposures. At the time that I learned this, there were 4,500 medical waste incinerators around the country. Most of the hospitals had one. They might have asthma awareness programs, and then they'd be burning medical waste and sending out pollution into the neighborhood. The, the, the contradiction between the Hippocratic oath that health professionals take to do no harm and their practices were, was stunning. And it made it, whether it, we it, knew it or not. Would you say that clinicians knew this? That the, the incinerators putting out dioxin was that? A, it was not aware? understood because when you understood. go to medical school, you go to nursing school, you don't learning about the relationship between the environment and people's health. Incredibly, you're, it's it was a big black box. So oddly, this is the this is the mid nineteen nineties you're talking about, right? Yeah. So and there's this odd cycle. It sounds like Gary, where clinicians like. Don and I, we're busy taking care of people in the hospital or in our clinical environments. And at the same time, the waste products of that clinical care are creating new disease that we then have to treat in the clinical environment. So we're creating this cyclical effect on some level of not every time and maybe not to the same degree, but there is at least a bit of what we are doing, which is trying to create more health, is in fact having this negative consequence on health, if I'm understanding you right. Exactly. And so I launched with others, Healthcare Without Harm, to basically bring this latest environmental science to the one sector of our economy that has healing as its mission, that lives by this oath to first do no harm and get them to clean up their house and to become a force for much broader transformation in our society. So when we started, there were, as I said, there were 4,500 incinerators in the U.S. A decade later, there were less than 100. And we had taught the healthcare sector how do you reduce your waste? What can you recycle? What can you re- reuse? What don't you need? When we started the mercury thermometers were the gold standard for measuring temperature in the US and around the world. And 13 years later, we had won a global treaty phasing mercury out of healthcare. Gary, you make it sound simple. We started Healthcare Without Harm. I'll bet that was quite a journey. Get, give us, take us back to the beginning. And how, how did you do it? What did you start? What actions did you take? We brought together in a meeting, a couple of meetings, both people who were uh, community activists who were fighting incinerators in communities, and sometimes they were against hospitals, in, especially in low-income communities of color in Cleveland, the Bronx, and Oakland. We had a few doctors and nurses, not many. We didn't know very many. And we just said, we got to work on this together. We got to not only show the healthcare sector that they have they have a significant problem and blind spot around environmental issues, but we're also going to hold their hand and help them solve this together. So there was a, a very conscious choice not to shame and blame them, 
but to partner with them. What, what are the docs, how did the clinicians react to this? I, I, I have to, I'm just curious, what kind of reaction were you getting from doctors, nurses, administrators, perhaps of health systems? Was it, what, what did you get from them? Were they prepared for this? Did they appreciate the message? Did they say, no, you got it wrong? What was there? There were some people, there were some people at the American Hospital Association that said, you got it wrong. We have these experts that are telling us it's really okay. There's not a big problem with incineration. I said, really? Who are these experts? And so when we researched those experts, they were incinerator salespeople. Uh Okay, maybe you need a second opinion here. And they were recalcitrant initially, but the doctors and nurses who understood that they shouldn't be releasing dioxin through their practices, they were unaware of it. They became very strong allies initially, and it actually led to a partnership with the American Hospital Association, with the American Nurses Association, and the EPA and healthcare related harm to dramatically reduce waste in the sector and to eliminate mercury, which we did. And what happened is that people felt like, wow, that was really important and a successful effort because it brought everybody together. It was a non-competitive environment. We're all working on this together. And they said, okay, what's next? That was fantastic. We said, let's talk about the plastics that you're using. Some of them are leaching these very toxic chemicals, these ones that are disrupting hormones and turning on and off genes inappropriately. They're actually leaching out of some of your medical products into your patients, into your vulnerable patients. Let's work on that. They said, what about the buildings are produced with lots of toxic chemicals and places that have no natural light? They're like on life support systems. Maybe we can make the buildings healthier for everybody, including the workers and without toxic chemicals. Maybe we can build cancer centers without carcinogens. We can build children's hospitals without chemicals linked to birth defects. What about the food we serve? My goodness, the food we serve is actually is the very food that is contributing to chronic disease. We've got soda machines. We've got fast food joints on the first floor of our hospitals. Maybe there's a disconnect there. What about climate? Oh my God, we're huge. We're huge users of, of 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 fossil fuels, contributing to the very diseases that people are coming into our emergency rooms for. So everywhere we scratched, we found bigger and bigger footprints of the healthcare sector. And given that it's twenty percent of the U.S. economy and ten percent globally, we said, how can we leverage this sector to actually uh, to make this enormous transformation away from an economy built on fossil fuels and toxic chemicals to one that's built on renewable energy and more sustainable processing technologies. So Gary, I want to get to the climate story in a minute, but didn't you hear back from the hospitals that it costs too much and they're under such financial pressure and they didn't have the money to invest in these changes? Was that part of the... It saved them money. Saved them money? Saved them lots of money. When they reduced their waste, it saved them lots of money because they had been putting computers and pizza boxes and everything else in the red bags in the most infectious waste bags, which cost, it costs like 10 times more than normal garbage, et cetera, waste. And so we said, don't put all that stuff in. There's a very small amount that's actually infectious. Let's separate that stuff out. Let's recycle some stuff. Let's reuse some stuff. Let's reprocess some things so we're not throwing away all these medical devices right away, even if we've used them or not. And so just starting to build some coherence to even managing waste, which wasn't being done, saved lots of money. Gary, can um, I ask you a question on dioxin and, and back to dioxin and, and mercury for a moment? I, I can't under 
you're going right through this this story. But prior to this international treaty on mercury, mercury is omnipresent in healthcare. It's everywhere. It's in medications. It's in diagnostic equipment. It's in thermometers in homes all over the world. And you make this treaty happen. You reduce, eliminate essentially mercury use in healthcare fundamentally and dioxin exposure through the incineration story that you're telling. What kind of effect does that, do you have any sense of kind of the number of lives impacted or otherwise as a result of some of that effort? Is this, I'm just curious, what do you sense is the effect of these efforts? It was, it was hard to quantify around mercury, but it, what it did shine a light on is that the remaining source of mercury emissions, the biggest source of mercury emissions that, that at a global scale is coming off of coal-fired power plants. Mm. And so it helped to educate the healthcare sectors like, okay, great. We made enormous progress on the, the mercury and blood pressure devices and thermometers and some medications, but the big source is actually coming from coal. And so we, sometimes in healthcare, are relying on coal to run our facilities. Mm. So it helped to build, bridge that educational moment and to get them to focus on their fossil fuel use. On the dioxin side, it was interesting. The Center for Disease Control measures the blood of people in this country for exposure uh, of toxic chemicals. What, what are we carrying, the byproducts of the chemical? What's inside of all of That's right. Okay. And so actually dioxin levels went down after this time. Now, do we know whether that leads to less cancer, less birth defects? That those quantifications are very difficult to measure, but the levels of exposure went down, which was very important. And so now you've moved from these early victories and started seeing all kinds of opportunities and a, a very interesting natural alliance between the, the work that you were doing on trying to remove toxic chemicals and exposures and healthcare professionals. I, that part of the story is very interesting, and I want to come back to that as well. But is that you, you've created in some ways, and because clinicians, doctors, nurses, social workers, et cetera, have a, a natural interest in the health of people, you made this a very relatable story for healthcare practitioners. These chemicals, these exposures create the kind of ill health that is your job to try to reduce. And did that end up creating a, a natural uh, alliance between what you were trying to do with, in healthcare without harm and the clinical community? That has been building over time, and, and clinicians were crucial validators for the kind of changes that we were promoting. Nurses, for example, when we told them that some of the plastics that they were using, these PVC plastics, were leaching toxic chemicals into their patients, pregnant moms, children in the neonatal intensive care unit, they said, we had no idea. We had no idea. We didn't get into this profession thinking we were actually contributing to disease or exposure. And so they became important advocates for eliminating that kind of plastic and moving to safer plastics. When we talked to doctors, we said, you know what? The fact that your hospital is buying um, meat produced with the overuse of antibiotics, that's actually contributing to antibiotic resistance and the, the lack of efficacy of the antibiotics you're using because 70% of all the antibiotics used in this country are used in animal agriculture some of the same ones that are used for patients. And they said, oh my God, we didn't know that. So they became advocates for getting their hospitals to say, we only want to buy meat that's produced without the use of antibiotics. And it created a whole righteous cycle that then led to the distributors and the 
industrial growers to produce chicken and others, other meat without antibiotics. Gary, um, let's move to the carbon story, to greenhouse gases and, and climate change, because healthcare without harm is really has an enormous footprint, and not just nationally, but internationally, on trying to get healthcare to decarbonize, to reduce greenhouse gases. T talk us through that a bit. How big, a, how big an issue is it? What are some of the barriers and what kind of successes are we having now? Yeah. So we did a, an analysis. A few others did as well. We did an analysis of healthcare's climate footprint overall. And we found that in the United States, it was almost 9% of total greenhouse gas emissions for the country. And globally, it was almost 5% of global emissions. So just put it in perspective. That meant at, at a global scale, healthcare's annual emissions were the equivalent of over 500 coal fire power plants. And in the U.S., healthcare was responsible for 25% all global healthcare emissions. That meant over 125 coal fire power plants. Very significant source that actually is contributing to premature death related to air pollution from all these fossil fuel emissions as well as driving the climate crisis. That was a very important factor. And in and, and educating, again, the healthcare sector about its own climate footprint, we did that piece. And then we said, okay, like everything else, it, giving people, giving the sector bad news without solutions isn't a winning item because everybody in healthcare is so busy and overwhelmed with everything they do. So we need to give them a roadmap. So we developed a roadmap for how do you decarbonize systems? And we did this globally, but also across 64 countries. And so, Gary, what's, can you give us an idea of the kinds of so things reduce, that are on that roadmap? Yeah. So move away from, of course, your reliance on fossil fuels to run your facilities uh, to more renewable energy, to embed more energy efficient technologies and strategies into the equipment you use, to reduce the amount of meat that you actually provide your patients toward more plant-based diets and buying that food from more regional and local suppliers that are growing sustainably. So reduce the food miles, reduce the food waste, optimize, uh, use less stuff in the operating room where there's enormous mountains and mountains of waste. Design buildings so that are more energy efficient. And the footprint of pharmaceuticals, which is a huge piece of the puzzle. What we found is that 70% plus of their footprint was actually in the stuff they used, the supply chain, the things they bought, and their investments in fossil fuel companies. So we put a package together that included all of those things. On the heating and air conditioning side, so what can you run a hospital? You got to burn stuff to heat the hospital, don't you? And how, how can you green? You can use renewable energy, but you can use wind power. So lots of hospitals now are buying into solar fields, they're buying into wind turbines that not only support uh, the running of their facilities, but also the broader uh, grid for the country. So helping to invest in it in a renewable energy grid. Some of them are putting renewable energy like uh, solar panels over the buildings that they can and over their parking lots. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that. There's also a lot of dramatically making their systems much more energy efficient. So whatever fossil fuels they're using, less of them. It's interesting. I was I, our my hospital, Gary. Since I've become a little bit more aware of this through your counsel and your help educating me, I've noticed things about our what my hospital is up to these days. 
And one of the things that they did was put in uh, onto every floor, every ward, every unit, automatic dimming for lights, just as an example of something that I think is, Don, I think it was you that maybe said this in a meeting that we had at one point, which is the, there's two kind of axiomatic statements about this movement in healthcare to try to green healthcare is use less and then green the rest. And I see that idea of having automatic cutoffs for lighting or for other electrical equipment, that's a use less strategy. I also see a lot, actually, the dietary aspects of our hospital is really substantially changing from not just because of the environmental benefits of moving to a, a, a less meat intensive diet, but also for the health benefits of plant-based diets. We're seeing the hospital sort of transition the, the food program away from meat intensive or significant amounts of meat on the cafeteria menu, but not just for staff, but for patient diet as well. So it's, it's quite interesting. And this is, I, I, now I'm noticing it because of what you've been saying. It's been happening all along though. I think that hospitals are slowly but surely using less and greening what they can over time in the way that you're describing. How far along are we on that axis that Tater is talking about, Gary, if you, from zero to 100, where 100, where hospitals are all there and all on board and got it all done and Zeros we haven't started. What kind of score do you give us so far in the U.S.? In the U.S., I think we're at the top of the third inning, Don. I'll give you an example. The Department of Health and Human Services did a couple of things. First, the Biden administration uh, required all of Veterans Administration hospitals and the military hospitals to basically reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in alignment with the Paris Climate Treaty. That meant by 2030 to reduce their emissions by 50%, and then to be zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. So that's already 250 hospitals. Then HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, issued a healthcare climate pledge. Another 900 hospitals have signed on to that. So now we have about 15, 16% of all the hospitals in the U.S. that are all traveling down the same path toward decarbonizing their systems. But we need the other 85% to join. Is it fast enough, Gary? All the the scenarios that you see on climate are get it done earlier, sooner the better kind of thing. Is this kind of trajectory feel fast enough or do we need what the governor in California did? Say all EV, I'm talking about the uh, transportation now, all electric, all California cars sold by 2035 will be electric vehicles. The Biden administration did a similar thing recently. Do we need a, all, yeah, a net zero pledge for hospitals that goes, do we need to draw the line sooner, I guess, is the question. Are we going yeah, fast? Absolutely. Absolutely. We need, this has been mostly voluntary efforts. We actually need regulation and incentives to get everyone on board. For example, if the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, which Don was the director of at one point, said in order to get Medicare reimbursement, you need to make strong, you have to measure your greenhouse gas emissions and you have to make commitments to dramatically reduce your greenhouse gas emissions by date certain and certain amounts by date certain. Uh, Otherwise, you won't get reimbursement. That would get everybody on board. As well as saying, and you need to also build resilience strategies. What does that mean? That means that what we learned from Hurricane Sandy and Katrina and the wildfires in California and so many other climate-related disasters is that Hospitals are the la- need to be the last building standing in extreme weather events, in extreme heat events. And in many cases, we're finding that they need to be evacuated. So it's a tragedy upon tragedy. At the very moment when people need their support, some of them are being evacuated. And so we need to design resilience 
into those systems, but also into the community. And that gets to the other massive issue that we're facing in the country, which is health inequities. So we need to start to, to link addressing climate and environmental health issues with also addressing health inequities in our communities, because this, these are tied together. The very people who are most vulnerable, communities of color, low-income communities, elderly, children, they're the most vulnerable to having health inequities, economic inequities. They're also the, the ones who are most vulnerable to climate. Yeah, Gary, so let's talk about tactics or strategy or whatever about in this. Your first part of your story, you sound like Mr. Nice Guy. You get worried about dioxin and mercury and you get people around a table and they say, oh my goodness, we didn't know this was a problem. And they all get to work together. It sounds pretty, pretty happy story. Now in the climate change world, when you're talking about changing use of greenhouse emission of greenhouse gases, fossil fuel change, supply change. Do you think that's going to work? Let's all get together and do what's reasonable? Or is there inevitably going to be some conflict and a tougher, a tougher job here in which you have to do a little bit more political and confrontational yeah. work? How do you think about it? And by the way, I'm asking you as a very effective change agent, which you are, and I think what you, the model you're using for healthcare without harm, it could apply to many other agendas we have in which it'd be nice to get people around a table, but we end up in conflict. Help us think about that, this change agency and conflict. Yeah, it's a key question, Don. And the question is this, are we going to, as a society and a planet, have an economy that has an ethical framework, that has an ecological framework? At the moment, the economy that is based on fossil fuels and toxic chemicals requires externalizing harm to people on the planet. If those industries had to internalize all the damage they're doing to the environment and to people's health, they would go out of business. So there's, a, there's an inherent externalization of harm that's embedded in that economy. There's a strong momentum in the other direction. So what would it mean to have an economy that was based on do no harm, where people weren't being sacrificed, workers weren't being sacrificed, Communities weren't being sacrificed to produce the goods and services we need. And healthcare can model that transformation to an economy where health and equity are built into its DNA. But there's an enormous pushback. On the other side, there's a very strong alliance with the fossil fuel industry to keep things going. So this past year, the four largest fossil fuel companies earned $195 billion. And at the same time, we had billions and billions of dollars of environmentally related disasters around this country and around the world. They didn't pay in for any of it. At the same time, there's momentum in the economy among businesses at the Securities and Exchange Commission to say, we want to ask companies, what is your climate strategy? What are you doing around environment and social factors in your business? And there's a pushback from different states in this country to say, if you have any kind of uh, environmental or ethical framework for your investments, we're going to kick you out of the state. We're not going to let you do business. We're not going to buy from you. We're not going to invest in you through you. So there's, th this is contested space as to whether we're actually going to have a, an economy that has ecological limits or an ethical framework. Any hints for our listeners? general public about what they ought to be doing or could be doing in this realm? I think that to the extent that there 
they have investments. They should be asking their investment companies, are you investing in ways that actually have some social responsibility that are addressing climate issues? If they're in communities, can they get involved in efforts to try to solarize and create stronger local renewable energy policies in their cities? There's so many places for people to intervene in the system and to find where they can act within their own sphere of influence. Not everybody's trying to change the world at a global scale, but they could do it in their homes, in their communities, in their workplaces. Gary, what about the idea that we might be creating a new unfunded mandate? So I'm trying to put myself in the seat of of a hospital leader today. You're asking a very honorable request, but there are many such honorable requests that are facing the typical hospital administrator at this moment at a time when hospitals are under considerable duress, workforce challenges, financial issues, et cetera. And we're saying, you're saying, let's install solar panels and electrify the fleet and change all kinds, all those things cost money. I'm just curious what your thoughts are around how to, even if you're a willing and interested and activated hospital leader today, what would it take to help them cross that bridge? Do we need something like the High Tech Act, which was an act passed many years ago now, over a decade ago, that helped hospitals receive funding to change from paper-based electronic records to electronic health records. That was that came with substantial funding that allowed for the essentially the electronic transformation of healthcare. Do we need a kind of green transformation of healthcare that involves a healthy amount of funding that would actually enable hospitals to make this kind of change? Because otherwise, I feel I I, I worry that we're talking about a whole bunch of unfunded mandates that are going to be very challenging for people to adopt. The Inflation Reduction Act that passed provides enormous amount of funding for the transformation to energy efficiency, toward charging stations, toward renewable energy, and that we've been working with the government and with the hospital systems to access that money. One of the uh, one of the impediments had been that the Center for Medicaid and Medicare rules required hospitals to have diesel as backup, diesel, very dirty fuel, polluting fuel as backup systems for all their hospitals. And so the hospitals were saying to us, we can't access this, these funds because of these rules that CMS has um, for backup systems. We would like to invest in battery storage and, and renewable energy as and microgrids as, as backup systems or even more for our systems. And so we have a healthcare climate council, like 21 large systems that came together and wrote to CMS said, we need a waiver. We need to be allowed to invest in this stuff. And CMS granted them a waiver. So now, especially in heavily impacted communities, hospitals can invest in these things and they can actually get paid to do it. So there are vehicles already established that can actually get them to do some of these investments. On the other side, many of the kind of early interventions that we're proposing with the National Academy of Medicine and others actually save hospitals money. You reduce your waste, you save money. You reduce your energy, you save money. You reduce the amount of stuff that you waste in the operating room, you save money. If you reduce the amount of food waste and you connect that to giving it to the food that you're not using to nonprofits and food banks and the communities to address food insecurity. You're saving money and you're also doing positive things in your community. So there's many interventions that actually save money and there's vehicles to invest in. The problem for many of the hospitals, either they don't understand that or they don't have somebody or some group of people 
in charge of helping to access this and to act as a quarterback in their system to take advantage of these opportunities. Yeah, I must editorialize to say I I think that hospitals under the kind of stress that Kater is talking about are more and more, they're too much asking for special pleading. We're so busy, we're so stressed yes. that we can't get onto this bandwagon. Uh, I personally think they should be doing it anyway. It's part of their job as healers. But if it saves money, that's even less, that's even more short-sighted. But, but can I, can I, before you go on, I actually think this is an interesting question, right? If we're going to actually want the kind of massive scale that we need, what you're talking about, getting the 15% engaged, I'm not that worried about. Gary, you said they voluntarily signed up, 900 hospitals voluntarily signed up for the Biden administration's pledge. That group of hospitals, we're not, I'm not particularly concerned about. They're going to make the investments and take the steps. But if we want to get to the 85% that Gary's trying to get to, I think you need a different mechanism. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it can be goodwill and it's health alone. It's better for the environment. It's better for the health of our population. Although I think those things should matter. There's got to be an economic um, support structure that helps us. And Gary, your point earlier that there are some vehicles there already, but I, I'm wondering whether there's even more investment that we need to make in, in order to make that transformation. If we ask hospitals to move to electronic health records and don't give them a penny to do it, we don't have 90% of hospitals today on an right. EHR, in my view. I think it takes that kind of subsidy and support that in many ways, Don, you oversaw when you were in D.C. Eric, mean, so uh, building on what Kedar said, my question is, okay, we're entering a political season now. What's your wish list? What do you hope that uh, Congress and the administration would do to take Kedar's advice here? And what are, what are three things you'd like to see come out of federal government, if not now, then at least as a result of the next election? Yeah. One would be to have some regulations in place that actually require hospitals to do this work. To, um, in the interest of the future of our country and the planet, it's not really an option at this point. So requiring hospitals in the health sector and to get on board on a dramatic reduction of their climate footprint would be one. Two would be to start to change some of the financing measures that actually reward upstream interventions because it's crucial that we are no longer just funding hospitals to treat people because it's outmoded at this point. We understand that much more of the disease burden is coming from the environment and the social and racial conditions that people face upstream. And yet we still are mostly financing treatment at the end when people have already been sick. So we've got to change the financial structure of healthcare in this country so that we're trying to prevent disease. That's so fundamental to this. And the third, which would be enormous, is to actually hold the fossil fuel companies responsible for the damage that they're producing. We have to internalize the fundamental externalities that, they, that are, we are bearing with our health and the health of people all over the planet. Those three things would have big impact. Gary, if we have uh, folks who are listening who are doctors, nurses, clinicians in, in, in the health system somewhere in the country today, what would be your advice to them in terms of what they can do to try to reduce their carbon footprint? They can, what can they do to help with some of what you're describing here? Yeah, doctors and nurses are some of the most trusted members of our society. So leveraging their moral suasion, their power, their trust in the public is enormous. So 
we're seeing that as clinicians get more aware of this issue, of this existential threat, they're pushing their hospitals, their health systems to make commitments around their own greenhouse catchment. They're getting involved as anesthesiologists to say, why we're using a gas that actually is 2,000 times more potent. That's nuts. Let's use a safer gas that's just as effective and it costs less. So pediatricians are getting involved. People in different disciplines are actually saying, how do we green our clinical practice? That stuff that you guys do at IHI. How do you green this? How do you make this more effective so that it actually has less of a footprint and just as effective or more effective? They can also get involved in policy. When clinicians get involved in an effort to try to stop fracking or stop coal-fired power plants or stop the petrochemical industry from expanding in, in West Virginia and Ohio and Louisiana and Texas, having clinicians to say, this is a health issue. This is not just an environmental issue or an economic, this is a health issue. And having them become validators and messengers for policy transformation, it's enormous. It's a game changer. If you think about the role that Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War had in changing the narrative around nuclear war, say this is collective suicide from a health point of view. That is what we need. We need an army of doctors and nurses and others in healthcare to fundamentally shift the narrative around the climate crisis to say, mm-hmm. it's about our health. That's a pretty profound change, actually, that you're describing here. So much of the political argument is about the environment and sustainability and whether there's plausibility to the environmental challenge. What you're saying is this isn't just that whether you believe climate change is happening or not, immaterial. These effects are having an effect on human health, including the health of your kids and, and grandkids and, and future generations. So we are reframing this whole argument as a health challenge in the same way that this is a, it's a powerful transformation, I think. In the I mean, losing health, fossil fuels, according to the Harvard School of Public Health recent research, they calculated that fossil fuel emissions, air pollution related fossil fuel emissions, killed 8 million people in 2000. Wow. That's more than twice the amount of people of AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. So it's the greatest public health threat we face on the planet. Wow. Gary, if people want to find out more about what you're working on and find Healthcare Without Harm, how would they do that? Where would they, how could they get in touch? The website is www.noharm.org. And they can get in touch with me, gary.cohen at hcwh.org. We need more recruits. We need more people involved. We need to build a movement inside of healthcare for this kind of transformation. This is what you've been talking about for years, Don, the moral determinants of health, building a movement around the moral determinants of health. This is part of that. No better, the movement has no better an inspirational leader than you, Gary. Thank you so much for what you do. We ask all of our guests one last question, which is about your feeling about whether you're optimistic today as you look out into the future or whether you're pessimistic about our future. Where do you rate on the pessimism scale? Yeah. I have two comments. One is that we saw during the pandemic that within a year, we were able to produce a vaccine that an incredible record speed that could vaccinate everybody around the planet, if of course, equitable distribution being an issue here. So when we put our minds to it as a society, we can have enormous transformative impact at speed. The second thing I'll say is that I take a lot of inspiration from the former poet and first leader of the Czech Republic, 
Vaclav Havel, where he talks about the hope. And by hope, he doesn't mean that it's like optimism about things are going to turn out fine. Hope is an orientation of the spirit that says what you're doing is good and right. And you know at a deep level that it's the right thing to do, regardless of what's going to happen, regardless of the outcome. And I think that we, I certainly hold, and I think it's important to hold the idea of hope as an orientation of that what we're doing needs to happen. And it may take well beyond my lifetime into our children's and grandchildren's lifetime, but we need to hold that center of gravity and spirit. Gary, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. We'll leave you all with that message of relentless and wonderful hope. Thank you so much, Gary, for being with us. Thanks so much. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armante. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org. Thank you.